You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, today is uh, uh, Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. First time I've said 2022. I'm kind of excited about that. Um, And I'm here with uh, Professor Caleb Fuller of Grove City College and the author of this new great book, New Free Lunch, uh, which is six economic lies you've been taught and probably believe. Um, So Caleb, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Pete. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. And I'm going to uh, ask you uh, some questions about the book. So let's start with the title, No Free Lunch. Uh, This has been a a phrase economists have uttered for years. Uh, When I was a a student, the professors used to say just Tanstoffel. Tanstoffel, right? So uh, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, Can you discuss its origins, its meaning, and why you decided to stress that basic principle as the theme of your book? Sure. Uh, Well, the first thing I would mention is that when I was initially in talks with my publisher, Freiling Publishing, I was shocked to realize that there weren't any famous popular economics books with that exact title. Uh, Milton Friedman uh, has an old out-of-print collection of magazine essays um, that was titled There's No Such Thing as a Free Lunch, uh, which is where we get that um, acronym TANSTOFFEL that you mentioned. Uh, But that's hardly one of his well-known books, like, say, Capitalism and Freedom would be. Um, And there are no uh, books, to my knowledge at least, that are titled the shorter, pithier, no-free lunch, uh, as mine is. So I suppose you could interpret that as a bit of anecdotal evidence against the efficient markets hypothesis. (laughs) Um, Because as you allude, there's there's hardly a phrase that's more closely associated with the practice of economics um, than there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Now, as for its beginnings or its origins, um, no scholar actually knows Tanstoffel's origin story for sure. Um, However, a story that I tell in the second chapter of the book is the likely source of this phrase. Um, At one of the first international meetings of social scientists, uh, Vilfredo Pareto, the noted Italian polymath, was arguing with Gustav Schmoller, who was the leading light in the second generation of the German historical school. Now, our source on the rest of this story might be a bit biased uh, since it was reported by Pareto himself in his 1916 book, The Mind and Society. But at least in Pareto's telling, Schmoller repeatedly interrupted Pareto during one of his presentations in order for Schmoller to remind Pareto that there really were no such things as universal economic laws that held across time and place. Uh, Now, as one of the most important precursors to general equilibrium theory and what would then go on to be referred to as the Lausanne School, Pareto was definitely a a vociferous defender of universal economic principles. And understandably, he was also annoyed by Schmoller's boorish behavior. So in order to enact revenge on his intellectual rival, Pareto did something that I think it's hard to imagine contemporary academics having the nerve to do. Uh, He dresses up like a beggar and he waits for Schmoller to pass him on the street. 
And once Schmoller is in earshot, Pareto accosts him and asks him whether he knows of anywhere in the city where a lunch could be had for free. Schmoller is reported to have replied something along the lines of, my dear sir, I know of several places where lunch may be had for very cheap, but nowhere can lunch be had for free. And then Pareto leaps up to his feet. He tosses off his beggar costume and he shouts, aha, so you do believe in economic law. <laughs> um, so, so what Pareto is getting at there is that scarcity is a universal condition for human choosers. And that when we choose, we necessarily sacrifice something else that we value. That's our opportunity cost. And that's true for all people in all places. And then from that, we can begin to develop other insights, such as the, the insight that when something's cost rises, we do less of it or we consume less of it. Those are universal principles, and, and they're what Schmoller argued did not exist, and, and it's thus why Pareto you know, believed that he had you know, sort of won that argument. Um, and so that spat between Pareto and Schmoller is really the earliest instance that I'm aware of of something like the, the Tan Stoffel phrase being used. Though I haven't read it, I've, I've also been told the phrase, the phrase was used uh, in Robert Heinlein's classic sci-fi book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and that probably went a long way in popularizing it. Mm -hmm. um, now, you also asked, I think, about the significance of the phrase or, or its meaning. Um, I think the phrase really captures the fact that opportunity cost reasoning is at the heart of what it means to think like an economist. In that respect, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a Betkian or maybe a Wikstedian, <laughs> if you want to, to run your history of economic thought back to even before the subjective cost tradition at the LSE. Um, so this phrase, no free lunch, simply indicates that all resources are scarce, which is just another way of saying that they have uh, alternative uses. Um, the, the phrase has come to thus occupy a bit of a sardonic role in the economist's toolbox of retorts. You know, when a politician promises free healthcare or free education, all good economists retort, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch to remind us that the resources that are now being directed toward healthcare or toward education could have been used to satisfy some other objective, um, an objective or set of objectives that we now forego. And thus it is in fact costly to use those resources uh, in either healthcare or, or education. Um, and so I, I think you might've also asked in there why it is that I chose this as the unifying theme for my book's fallacies. I, I'd say it was partially that I see this um, opportunity cost reasoning as really being the core of, I guess you could call it mere economics to borrow a, a felicitous phrase from C.S. Lewis. Um, so I, so I think that's, you know, one reason. Um, and more pragmatically, when I spent some time reflecting on the questions that I received from my own students in, in Econ 101, who are, of course, very bright students at Grove City College, um, it struck me that my responses to their most commonly asked questions almost always appealed to opportunity cost reasoning or what uh, Frederick Bastiat would have called the unseen. Right. And I think that's particularly striking, say, in the case of international trade related fallacies. Um, so anyway, th those are sort of, I guess, the two, yeah. two reasons why I chose it as the theme. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that you know, the, the great Thomas Sowell likes to say that the first rule of economics is we live in a world of scarcity. The first rule of politics is deny that we live in a world of scarcity. And so that you're always dealt with this idea that the economist uh, is pointing out that there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. And learning how to negotiate those various trade-offs is one of the key uh, things to 
economic life, social life in general, and the institutions of the market, for example, are vital to help us assess and engage in those trade-offs. That's why profit and loss calculus is so important and other kinds of things. Um, and so it is follows, I think, directly from it, the, the core principles. And you do a fantastic job of deploying those principles to address uh, a lot of common fallacies. And so I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you find is the most common fallacies uh, that uh, popular fallacies that exist and how opportunity cost reasoning debunks them. Sure. Yeah. So my book discusses six economic fallacies, which is, I guess, a far cry from the, I believe it's 24 chapters that comprised Henry Hazlitt's 1946 book, Economics and One Lesson, a book that served as some inspiration for me. Um, and when I began thinking about which fallacies I wanted to include, I suppose there was nothing entirely scientific about my inclusion or exclusion process, but I began writing down the most frequently asked questions, again, as I mentioned, from my principles of micro courses, which I teach every semester. Um, and, and it struck me that those questions could be answered by a thorough explanation of the concept of, of opportunity cost. Um, and so you don't have to look far to find the fallacies in, in my book. Uh, they're my six chapter titles. The first chapter examines the idea that destruction is profit, uh, a phrase that comes from Bastiat's 1850 essay, that which is seen and that which is unseen. And I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with, with Bastiat's parable of the broken window, which colorfully explodes the idea that destruction yields uh, prosperity. You know, when a, when a vandal throws a brick through a shopkeeper's window, the subsequent um, reparative and restorative activities, those don't make us better off than we would have been without the destructive act. Uh, but some folks believe that they do. And so this lie that destruction is profit ultimately conflates economic value with productive economic value. Um, we see it commonly deployed in the wake of natural uh, disasters or man-made disasters like, like wars. Um, and someone commits this fallacy whenever they, they praise those destructive events for creating a flurry of easy to detect, highly visible economic activity devoted to the rebuilding effort. And it's a fallacy because it overlooks precisely that opportunity cost reasoning that, that we were discussing. Yeah. The fact that um, there's an alternative use uses for the scarce resources that are being poured into that, into that rebuilding effort. Um, so in the case of a hurricane, for instance, those resources are merely <clears throat> restoring the status quo. Uh, there's no new net value creation. Um, if you'd like, Pete, I can, I can simply talk through the other five. I don't know if you want me to. No, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> I, we'll get to it. I think in the next set of questions, Sure. So I want to ask a, a practical question and then a more intellectual question again, uh, which is that, you know, as you pointed out, there's there's a, a lot of economic illiteracy in the world. And one of our you know major jobs, I think, as economic educators, uh, just like, you know, in general, you know, in numeracy and math educators, as economists, educators, Econ 101 is you know, in some sense, the core principle of our discipline. But yet, Econ 101 has come under a lot of assault in the last, say, decade uh, or more. I would say 
since the financial crisis, it's become a bigger issue than ever before in some sense, except maybe when you go all the way back to Schmoller versus Pareto. <laughs> right? And so we kind of seen this idea as an educator trying to reason through, you know, using reason and, and, and evidence to try to, you know, ratchet down the emotional aspects that sometimes lead to um, economic illiteracy. What do you think are the biggest challenges to Econ 101? And how are they illustrated in your counter with basic economics reasoning? Yeah, well, this is certainly an important point um, because as you mentioned, Econ 101 has really fallen on hard times of late. Uh, you have people like um, law professor James Quack, I believe that's how you pronounce yep, his name. Yep. He's writing articles like The Curse of Econ 101. Right. Um, so he's not really hiding his feelings there. Um, he has another book titled uh, Economism, I believe, where he takes aim at the allegedly simplistic Econ 101 course. He's being joined by other voices like Noah Smith. Uh, then at Harvard, you had Greg Mankiw's long-running principles course, which was you know, a theory course in the neoclassical tradition, I believe recently replaced by a course being taught by Raj Chetty, which I've seen a syllabus and my view of that is that it really seeks to downplay theory and in theory's place, it introduces a mix of positivism, scientism, and historicism. Right. So it's uh, by making students first encounter with economics to be all about uh, data interpretation, you know, just, just right. let the data speak. Um, right. And so by contrast, and I guess, you know, trigger warning, um, all the demand curves in my courses slope downward and to the right. <laughs> uh, uh, and not just in my principal's courses, I might add, uh, but, you know, also in my upper level courses. So as someone who really believes in, in the tremendous value of, of economics 101, I think the task falls to people like myself and like yourself to demonstrate its profound power for making a highly complex world uh, intelligible. Um, and so I guess what I would say is that, and I, and I do say this in the introduction to my book, is that I am aware that there are comebacks to the basic principles that I describe in this book. Um, and I even wrestled a bit with how many of those comebacks and then my comebacks to the comebacks to include. But I ultimately uh, decided to keep the book on the shorter side to aim for, to aim for parsimony. And, and one reason for that is just that um, I think that those comebacks fail and that they fail for uh, a fundamental reason, which is that they just haven't really grappled with the actual principle that's being described. Um, so I can give you, say, an example of how I would reason through that uh, from, from that first chapter that I was just yeah. mentioning. Um, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, the first uh, fallacy that I dis discuss is this idea that destruction is profit. And surely the comeback that is on the tips of so many tongues is the idea that Bastiat's parable really only possesses limited applicability, um, that his story only works under conditions of full employment. Right. Um, and so in that circumstance, sure, it's true. You know, all resources incur an opportunity cost in their current use. Um, but what about cases where resources are idle, where um, laborers are widely unemployed? Well, in that case, the argument goes, using those resources really for any purpose is on net beneficial 
because there's no opportunity cost. Uh, again, that's how the reasoning goes. You know, the relevant alternative now is that those resources just lay idle, producing nothing of value. So why not put those resources to work? Um, perhaps even by digging ditches and then filling them up right. again, as occurred during the Great Depression. Right. Um, and so, you know, you know, that's the standard Keynesian response. And I think it also unfortunately matches the intuitions of many people on the street, perhaps because they've been exposed to Keynesian reasoning at some point during their, their formative educational years. Um, but I do think that it misses the mark for, for a variety of reasons. Um, the first reason is that it simply takes widespread idleness for granted, um, or perhaps it posits some other fundamentally non-economic explanation for idleness, such as um, Keynes's animal spirits. Um, but, but we have to understand why widespread idle resources could come about in the first place if we are going to be capable of applying a, a helpful cure. Um, and so, you know, the answer to that is a little bit beyond the scope of my book, but capital goods can only become idle if you have a conception of capital goods as being heterogeneous. Um, and that heterogeneity in turn implies that they can become malinvested or to not, not use the technical economics terms there, you know, they can become poorly suited to their current position in the economy's complex structure of interlocking, interlocking capital. Um, and, I, and I think a second point that's, that's related here is one that's made by William Hutt in his, in his book, The Theory of Vital Resources, where he deals with this question at great length. Um, and in that book, he makes the argument that idle resources really aren't idle at all. Um, in a capitalist economy, productive resources are owned privately. So if a resource owner, um, including a laborer with respect to his you know, labor energies, is withholding those resources from the market, then that too is a use of sorts. Um, right. And you might wonder, well, what, what use is exactly being served there? Well, when a resource owner is withholding a productive resource from the market, one possibility is that they're searching for the best available price. Um, but searching is also a valuable activity, else it wouldn't be undertaken. Um, and so the decision to either withhold or to place that resource into the market in a capitalist economy, again, is guided ultimately by profit and loss signals. Um, there's also the political economy point about how it is that political decision makers could allocate that resource in a way that's superior to um, entrepreneurs who are seeking after profits and attempting to avoid losses. Um, there's really no reason to think that's, that's possible, that, that the political decision maker could um, allocate in a way that's superior in the absence of prices that serve as um, what Mises once called guides to the, to the human mind. Um, so the bottom line of this discussion is that policies aimed at getting idle resources off the sidelines <clears throat> oftentimes actually prolong the dislocation that put them there in, in the first place. Um, and so to kind of try to bring this full circle and bring it back to the idea of opportunity cost, I'd simply say that even seemingly idle resources actually do have an opportunity cost associated with pressing those into use via, you know, the tools of monetary or, or fiscal policy. Um, and so that's the sense in which I mean that, in my view, most of the comebacks to Econ 101 are somewhat superficial, they're surface level, they haven't actually grappled with the, the concept at the deepest possible level. Yeah. I, uh, so your answer raises a, 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 or stimulated a bunch of different thoughts in my head, and I'm just going to share them with you a little bit. One of them 
is, is that uh, Jonathan Gruber also recently was quoted as saying Econ 101 forces us to think about economics as a right wing science hmm. and it needs to be overturned. And, you know, there's this core movement going on in England and uh, but some people in the U.S. are involved with it as well, like the people at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, um, and they want to bring moral reasoning into economics. Gruber resists that, but he joins with the other critics of downward sloping demand curves, basically, and yes. argues that a downward sloping demand curve. And what is fascinating to me as a history of thought point is that at the University of Virginia with Buchanan and Tulloch and Nutter, when uh, the university faculty, not in econ, but in English and history, got upset with the econ department, uh, they accused it of being, uh, you know, uh, right wing. And uh, there's a series of letters going back and forth in the college newspaper at UVA and the econ faculty, a bunch of junior assistant professors joined together and wrote a collective uh, article, uh, you know, article in the newspaper. And, and one of the lines in it is, do you think that when a professor at Yale draws a downward sloping demand curve, they're any less right wing than when a professor at UVA draws a demand curve or are somehow demand curves different in New Haven than they are in Charlottesville. <laughs> and, and I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing that we have, you know, lost the kind of idea because, uh, and so the other thing I wanted to point out about your book, so you wrote a very, very good column in 2021 for, for, uh, for Liberty Fund on the continuation of Karl Menger and the Austrian school and its tradition. I think it's, everyone should, should uh, read it. It's, it's a fantastic essay um, in a very short period of, you know, short, time uh, space that you're given, but yet nevertheless full of insight. But one of the things that's fascinating about your book is that you draw on all good economists. So Milton Friedman liked to make this distinction. There's only good economics and bad economics. There's not Chicago economics or Austrian economics or Keynesian economics. It's just good economics or bad economics. Mm -hmm. And the content is what constitutes good economics. And we, we use schools of thought a lot of times as labels to be shorthands. But the reality is, is that you're just consistently and persistently pursuing the logic of the fact that we live in a world of scarcity. And therefore, we have to make trade-offs and go from there. And that challenges this, these, these various fallacies. And so, for example, in your last comment that you were just making, you know, you draw on Hutt, but as you also know, that's like Alchin's mm -hmm. argument about the labor yes. markets and unemployment and the whole idea that when you're engaged in search, you're engaged in self-employment, basically. And, yes. you know, and, and, and so this is just good economics. Why do you think it's so hard? for even trained professionals to just do consistent and persistent good economics. Do you have a, a theory behind theory choice in economics? Like, <laughs> let's not go to public choice right away. Just like, sure. why is it so difficult, I think, for people to just be content with the idea that we live in a world of scarcity? Scarcity implies that we must 
uh, make trade-offs and making those trade-offs, we negotiate those trade-offs, we need aid to the human mind within a commercial society that gives us a role for property prices and profit and loss. And that all good economists, no matter what stripe they are, should at least begin with that recognition. Yeah, it's a good question, Pete, and I'm not sure um, the extent of my thinking on this. I, I guess I would start by saying that I, I think that economics is more than just the law of demand. Yeah. However, as I tell my students, you can understand a tremendous amount about the world by simply internalizing the law of demand. Uh, why, for instance, have women participated in religious life in greater numbers than have men? I believe I mentioned this in, in the first chapter. Uh, an untrained economic eye might hypothesize that women are innately more spiritual or just innately, inherently more interested in religious matters. Um, an economist, by contrast to that, a good economist in the, in the tradition that you and I were just speaking about it, you know, one who's pursuing this opportunity cost reasoning in a relentless fashion, um, he or she is going to suspect that men and women face different opportunities, um, which at least historically was the case as men had expanded, you know, labor market opportunities. Right. And so giving up a high hourly wage might be their opportunity cost of attending religious services. And so as that wage rises, other things equal, then we expect less church attendance. Um, now, to, to attempt to answer your, your question a bit more directly and, and an attempt to do so with, without bringing in public choice, I think that you know, what attracts many people to, economi to economics, the discipline initially, is um, public policy. And, you know, I see this in, in my own students, and that's, there's certainly no vice uh, in that. That is what excites them. That's what energizes them about the discipline of economics is that they can begin to make sense of the policy actions that they see people taking. Um, but I think that coupled with that, and this is, of course, not something that my own students are, are so prone to, but um, many people are prone to couple that um, interest with a sort of, a sort of saviorism that once you begin to understand these principles of public policy, you begin to conceive of the economist's role as being, yeah. a, being a savior of society, um, rather than, you know, as you oftentimes put it, being merely a student of society, being an explainer uh, of the principles of how, you know, the market economy, for instance, operates. Um, and so I think this is a point that, you know, Murray Rothbard one time wrote about, which is it has to do with the role of the economist, particularly in a free society. What would that role be? And it would have to do with explaining the principles of social cooperation, how that is facilitated um, uh, in, in a free market. And it wouldn't have to do with, you know, manipulating po policy tools in order to achieve some desired outcome. Yeah. I wanted to follow up with you about students. It's again, mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a question stimulated by your responses, which is that, um, um, so I wrote a paper recently on the reception of uh, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose when it first was published uh, versus uh, how students would receive the message today. Say, for example, reading No Free Lunch, hmm. right? And so Free to Choose versus No Free Lunch. And so I use myself as an example because I was a, a freshman in college at Grove City uh, when Friedman published Free to Choose. Uh, 
And now there'll be kids that are freshmen in 2021, 22, that will get a chance to read No Free Lunch. Okay. Okay. But what was their common experience? So my common experience was, uh, so I was born in 1960. So uh, Nixon is forced to resign in 74. That means I'm 14 years old. So I'm just say starting to become politically conscious at the end of the Vietnam War, which is a failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the president of the United States having to resign in corruption. Then you have Jerry Ford, um, who, though he was an all-American athlete, was portrayed in comedic form as a klutz, right? So he's not an object of of any kind of worship. He's instead like a klutz kind of thing. And then you get Jimmy Carter and you have the Malays of the 70s. So I head off to college and there's no way that you view politics as a realm of romance, right? So in some sense, the market message is just waiting to be heard because that's an escape from politics. Hmm. Whereas a kid today, your students today, you know, they were, they had no idea about communism. You know, that's right. like watching a silent movie or something. It's to ancient them. history. Yes. It's ancient history. Um, they, they they know the U S has been involved in a war, you know, since nine 11, uh, they have uh, witnessed a global financial crisis and now, you know, COVID ruined their senior year of high school or junior year and senior year of high school, maybe combined. And now they're sitting in your class. And so to them, maybe now government is viewed as the, as the solution to the problems because rather than the market. And so how is it as an instructor, do you take into account that shared background of your students? And I understand Grove City is slightly different, but still they've experienced that same world. How do you take that into account when you address and, and, and try to communicate with your students about the power of economic reasoning and, you know, the kind of core claims that you make in the book? Well, I think that's a deep and important question, certainly for all uh, economics educators to consider. I think one of the things that you do a good job with is trying to think about the context or maybe to use a more pejorative term baggage uh, that students do bring into the classroom. Um, and so I guess, I guess I would just have a, a twofold answer here. And, and the first maybe is just to, you know, appeal to Hazlitt's idea that economics requires these long extended chains of reasoning in order to kind of pierce that, that fog of the unseen, which is what Bastiat refers to. And so we want to take any of those, um, events that you just mentioned, whether it's, the response to 9-11, or whether it's the lead up to the financial crisis, whether it's the public policy set of responses that have occurred um, after COVID, and and simply ask about whether some of the outcomes that we're seeing are the result of unhampered uh, market participants interacting in that context of prices, property, profit, and loss, okay? or whether their behavior is uh, better explained by you know, certain interventions that have taken place 
Um, I think it, I think it, I learned this from you actually that you know you, you t- sometimes walk into a classroom and ask a student how their behavior would change if they were say in Las Vegas gambling depending <laughs> on whether they had to you know put yeah. up their own money at the table or whether you were going to to foot that bill for them. And of course, you know, they're going to make way, way more risky gambles when, you know, Pete Becky is the one footing their bill. And then you say something like, you know, congratulations, your name is Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Right. So I think that sort of um, that sort of shock value, those sorts of anecdotes are uh, on the one hand, you know, very helpful for making the point that outcomes that we see are not attributable to a purely unhampered market. So that's that's yeah. one piece of the puzzle. I think the other side, the other flip side of that has to do with, um, you know, explaining the role of profit-seeking entrepreneurs in repeatedly generating solutions to the dilemmas that people face. And, and I think there it's helpful to bring in the Bommel point that, you know, there are, all, there are always these profit-seeking actors in society. And, and the relevant question is not, you know, whether they're seeking profits or not, but um, the rules of the what are the rules of the game that channel those profit seeking energies? Are those profit seeking energies being channeled into avenues that are what you know he called productive or what we could call positive right. sum, create you know an additional amount of wealth for people in society, or are they to use his other terms destructive or unproductive? Are they yeah. simply seeking to transfer wealth that has been produced by others and in so doing, you know, squandering resources in the process? Are they seeking to actually destroy resources that have been produced by others? Um, And so I think that point directs our attention once again to an emphasis on the rules of the game. So, So in that sense, I guess it's connected pretty fundamentally to my first point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, again, you know, the chapters are so concisely written and very powerfully have good illustrations and and great teaching tools. And I love the chapter. Um, I think it's chapter six, which is, uh, you know, challenging the idea that markets are unregulated, that yes. actually, in fact, markets are heavily regulated. They're self-regulated. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think that's such an important, when I was a kid and I read Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, one of the, the most powerful uh, so, you know, the book begins with the power of the market and then the tyranny of controls. And he raises the question because he's willing to take on the hard questions. And the question he took on at the time was uh, who protects the consumer? Yeah. Right. Because Everyone was worried about, you know, let's say, um, you know, uh, uh, drugs that you know, we're going to poison us or, uh, or products or, you know, like think about Ralph Nader and Mm -hmm. unsafe at any speed kind of idea. And then Friedman explains how markets, and you do that so powerfully in that chapter as well. So I, you know, I want to give you a chance to elaborate a little bit about that point about how markets are heavily regulated, but they're heavily regulated, self-regulated because of the power and profit loss. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right, Pete. Uh, let me just recommend to all of your listeners to read uh, Ludwig von Mises's, I believe it's his 1951 uh, sh- relatively short essay just entitled Profit and Loss for a good introduction to an Austrian perspective on the self-regulating properties of, of markets. Um, I will say that chapter six in my book, which again, they're titled after the fallacies that I'm addressing. So this one's titled Markets Are Unregulated. All right. I would say this is probably the subtlest of the fallacies that my book examines. 
And I think I, I picked this one because I was just so tired of having conversations with people, many of whom seem to believe that you know, free markets is a term that's synonymous with unregulated markets or that free markets demand uh, a quote unquote appropriate level of regulation. You know, we don't want wildcat capitalism. Um, of course, we're still waiting to hear what the appropriate level is, right? That's a fundamentally <laughs> unanswerable question. Um, but I think that this chapter attempts to provide good news, if you like, for people that are in that camp. And that's, as you put it, all, all unhampered markets come pre-regulated as it were. There's really no such thing as an unregulated market because all markets are regulated by the profit and loss system. Um, In fact, the social regularities that are imposed by profits and losses, those are really a big part of the reason why economics has a subject matter in the first place. You know, if, if when economists went to study the social world, all they found was you know, pure chaos and randomness, then there couldn't actually be any sort of a science there uh, to begin with. Um, so, so the regularity that profits and losses uh, impose on market participants is a, is a sign of the fact that the social world is in fact orderly and that there is something to study from the perspective of scientific inquiry. Um, so, you know, for example, why is it that uh, you know, Steve Jobs didn't try to uh, offer us all iPhones that were made out of solid platinum, for example, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that have been a really cool innovation to have this kind of indestructible uh, phone? You know, we never have to worry ever again about dropping our iPhone, it breaking, having to, you know, go to the, the Verizon store. Um, and, and the reason why he never attempted that sort of a silly endeavor is because um, he, he forecasted that making an iPhone that way would have been unprofitable, okay? Uh, that he would have earned economic losses or that he would have been penalized, in other words, by, by market participants. Um, now, all that language that I just used depends on Steve Jobs operating in the context of market prices, both for the consumer goods that he's producing and for the factors of production, uh, even more importantly, the factors of production that he is combining in order to give us give us an iPhone. And so the, the extraordinarily high price of platinum is telling Steve Jobs, hey, platinum is um, actually valued in certain other endeavors. I think like in, in, in certain uh, dental appliances, for example, that's where we really value platinum. And you don't want to deprive society of platinum in those uses by trying to put it into an iPhone where we don't value it uh, so much. Yeah. Okay. So that's the sense, that's the most basic sense in which profits and losses regulate or change and alter the behavior of market participants. Um, now I go beyond that in chapter six, and I make a couple of applications to questions uh, specifically fraud and discrimination. Okay. So um, not only does profit and loss discipline what it is that we produce and how it is that we produce it, but it also disciplines um, the impulse to cost cutting that would deliver fraudulent products to consumers. Um, you know, I, I draw here on the discipline of continuous or repeated dealings that mm-hmm. if a producer actually wants to have your business going into the future, if they value the profits that you might be able to bestow on them, and that gives them an incentive to behave in a way that you find to be, you know, satisfactory. Um, 
there's also the connection to discrimination. This, I think, is a, is a point that um, you know, my students really appreciate and is one that is really timely for many of the discussions that are, that are currently culturally relevant. Um, but when we fail to see the regulatory functions of profit and loss, we sometimes end up supporting policies which you know, undermine those regulatory functions. And, and one tragic consequence can be an increase in the amount of discriminatory behavior yeah. that occurs in marketplaces. Um, so just as a brief example, you know, profit regulation, um, when it say caps the amount of profit that uh, a firm is capable of earning to some you know, arbitrarily stipulated uh, percentage or rate, um, that can remove the incentive to hire the best worker for the job. And instead it allows people to indulge their own bigoted prejudices or to put it in that opportunity cost reasoning language. Again, we might say that it, it lowers the opportunity cost of discriminatory behavior um, because you, know, you, you won't be able to keep the additional profits from hiring the best worker anyway. So why not simply indulge in whatever your idiosyncratic or, or bigoted right. prejudices might be? So, you know, when you really understand this, these sort of deeper points about profit and loss, you realize that, you know, far from requiring us to choose between profits on the one hand and people, you know, as, as a sort of common leftist trope, um, it turns out that the profit and loss system is really the only humane way for humans to live with one another. Yeah, I I, I love what you do in that chapter. Um, you know, your your thesis advisor, Chris Coyne, one of my favorite papers of his is mm. a paper called Put Me In Coach, yes. which is about the integration of Major League Baseball and the role that competitive forces played in it. And what happens when you suppress the competitive forces is exactly what you're talking about, which is that you end up by then indulging in personal preferences that, in fact, may be idiosyncratic and undesirable at some level, but you've lowered the costs of the people engaging in them rather than making them pay the full cost. And I think one of the big errors that people hear when they think about like the Becker model of discrimination or whatever, is they think that what Becker or Alchin or one of these economists were ever arguing was, or Williams or Soul, is that discrimination would in fact go to zero. And that's mm -hmm. not their argument. It's right. that you have to pay for discrimination. That's and right. therefore we bring back the downward sloping demand curve once again, which is that if you make people pay a lot, to engage in something, they're going to consume less of it. And if you make them pay little, they're going to consume more of it. And so if you have policies which inadvertently lower the cost of them engaging in their preferences, don't be surprised when you see more of it. And so one of the things that competitive pressures do is it makes you pay the price for your behavior. The costs are concentrated on the decision maker rather than dispersed. And, and so that's a, uh, you know, I always thought, I always think of that as a, as a good way to think about the contrast between economics and politics, because what politics does is it concentrates benefits and disperses costs. But what economics, market economics does is it concentrates costs, but disperses benefits. And so good economics and good politics are constantly clashing with each other. And our role as economic educators is to clarify that clash, you know, and, and so the way Jim Buchanan would put it 
in class is that we have to teach you know, the basic principles of economics so that our students can become informed participants within the democratic process of collective decision making. And so our goal isn't to try to tell them what is the right policy, but instead to think about what are the trade-offs that are involved in all the different decisions and then put that power back in their, in their, uh, in, 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 in their autonomy in some sense. Um, I guess I wanted to, you know, again, given that last chapter, it highlights, as you said, it's a subtle examination. I think all of the very level-headed all the way through, uh, you know, you, um, uh, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, this is, um, I think the power of economic reasoning is that if you're the one who can maintain a level head while everyone else is losing their head around them, that you're going to actually be ahead of the game. Um, and you show that. But in that chapter, you reveal your uh, discussions of economics of organization, of law and economics, and the field of entrepreneurship in many ways. And these also map with your own research efforts. And I was, I wanted to switch a little bit from your role as a teacher to your role as a scholar, which you're building up quite a portfolio of papers ranging from things like the economics of privacy, the law and economics of privacy, to then also entrepreneurship, but again, also the economics of organization. And I was wondering if you give you a chance to talk a little bit about your, your favorite papers in that field to give the listeners a sense of the kind of ways you're developing these ideas yourself in your own research program. Yeah, well, thank you, Pete. Um, so you're right that I have kind of um, contributed, I guess, to a couple of different fields, but I do do see a unity across them um, with this emphasis on the basic economic way of thinking um, with the role of institutions to coordinate activity, to, to discipline and to, to reward behavior. Um, I guess to kind of follow up on that discussion that we were just having, one of one of my favorite papers is this paper that I published a couple semesters ago in Public Choice, which asks um, whether the market for digital privacy is a failure. So one of the ongoing discussions uh, that people like to have in the in the digital space is whether or not um, you know our, our privacy rights, let's say, are being violated systematically by so-called big big tech companies. Um, and uh, some of the more sophisticated proponents of that position attempt to bring in an economics argument and say that the market for privacy is actually a failure, that people demand more privacy than markets are actually supplying them. And so of course they have in mind things like the fact that Google is tracking you from one site to another, they're keeping uh, close tabs on your, your browsing history. And that in turn can inform the sorts of ads that you see, um, you know, perhaps whether those ads are price discriminating between different consumers, say based on their, their browsing history or even based on things like their location. Um, and so um, what I attempt to do in this paper in public choice is actually like the most simple econ 101 economics imaginable. And that is simply to uh, raise the point that there are trade-offs involved here. Yeah. Um, and that, yes, it's true that when we ask people whether they would like 
more privacy. They always say, oh, yes, I would like more privacy. You know, these tech companies are, are violating my rights, so forth. Um, when we actually ask them a, a follow-up question, like how, how much would you be willing to pay uh, to use these websites, you know, to get all the benefits that you currently derive from them, but to have your privacy, you know, completely intact, they say almost nothing. And of course, that in and of itself is, you know, interesting, it's illuminating, but it's even less of a step than simply observing what people's right. demonstrated preferences really are. They don't seem to, to put much of, a, of an emphasis on, on protecting their privacy and they derive positive benefits from the fact that firms collect their information and show them uh, ads that are actually targeted to what their preferences are, as opposed to having to wade through you know, a giant morass of ads that have nothing to do with their interests. So that's one point I make in there. Yeah. Another point I make actually connects to this chapter six in my book, where um, I talk about ways that um, entrepreneurs can actually supply privacy. And believe it or not, there are some scholars who have argued by appealing to, say, the prisoner's dilemma that it, that it would simply be impossible for firms to protect people's privacy or to, a better word maybe would be to respect people's privacy rights. Um, uh, one scholar, for example, describes um, the internet as a race to the bottom with respect to privacy and says, well, you know, even if there was one goody two shoes company that wanted to uh, provide a level of privacy protection, it would simply be outcompeted in the marketplace by all of the other, you know, greedy profit seeking firms that have no compunctions about violating your privacy. And so it would be forced, it would be forced to behave just like all the other firms would. And uh, one of the things that I do in that in that uh, paper towards the end is to argue that um, one way that firms can overcome that logic is to offer a credible commitment to with uh, withhold uh, collecting this information from consumers. And an example of that would be this um, uh, internet search company called DuckDuckGo, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They don't actually engage in the same sorts of techniques that Google does. They don't collect your, your information. Um, and, when they first uh, came onto the scene in 2008, one of the first things that they did was they uh, bought a bunch of um, ad space for those big billboards along the side of the highway out in um, uh, Silicon Valley, right in Google's backyard. And they had these big splashy signs that said things like, you know, hey, Google, Google tracks you, we don't. And they spent you know, tens of millions of dollars on this sort of advertising really before they had done much of anything. And what that advertising does is it serves kind of as a, as a hostage for consumers. You know, the moment that DuckDuckGo goes back on their word there, consumers are going to exit DuckDuckGo, you know, right. at the drop of a hat, because that's really the only differentiating feature of DuckDuckGo. Um, and as a result, DuckDuckGo would earn losses and they would never recoup the investments that they made in that, in that expensive signage. Yeah. So um, it, th th those are some ways that that paper yeah. connects to some of the themes we've been discussing. That's like your your promises and rings, right? That's Story because exactly it's right. a credible commitment issue, um, which I think you just do fantastic. Um, I I want to push you on another line of research that you've done, just because mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to contemplate the idea that simple economics is not simple minded. It's just basic economic reasoning. And in the hands, so one of my favorite lines from Jim Buchanan is in uh, one of his essays, he says, the properly trained economist must always have the principles of economics strapped to them, you know, constantly. And what the principles of economics do is they allow an ordinary man 
to rise to the height, an observational genius, not because he's a genius or she's a genius, but because they have the tools of economics, which is like this super magnifying eyeglasses of society. And one of the things that, that your work has demonstrated elsewhere is the trickiness of incentives. So basically making an argument about downward sloping demand, scarcity, trade-offs, downward sloping demand curves doesn't mean you have simple-minded answers to complex phenomena. You have to recognize the trickiness of the incentive schemes that are involved and how they can go awry. And you've developed this in, in, in a couple essays, but one of them on rooking the state and stuff. And basically the issue of opportunism and when they try to set up bounties, I guess that's the, you have a couple papers on bounty schemes. And could you maybe like just elaborate a little bit on them? Because I think they really do reflect how simple economics is not simple minded. And I think in that old econ, the criticism of econ 101, it's that confusion. They think that, you know, econ 101 is simple minded because it's so simple rather than that it's simple but in fact, illuminating a very complex phenomena. Yeah, well, thanks for highlighting that work on, on bounties. I, I have two papers. Uh, the first is with David Lucas, uh, and that one is entitled Bounties, Grants, and Market-Making Entrepreneurship, published in the Independent Review. Um, and then I have a follow-up paper also with David Lucas, and then additionally with, with Ennio Piano, another uh, George Mason grad, that we published in the International Review of Law and Economics. In the first paper with David Lucas, uh, what we attempted to show in that paper is that entrepreneurs undertake a sort of market making. They, they sort of uh, forge, forge the path to create markets where there weren't any before right. in the presence of government intervention. And we take as... Uh, our sort of springboard or motivating story here, uh, this po potentially apocryphal uh, story from the early 20th century about uh, the British who were at the time colonizing India and they encountered uh, a really lethal pest in the form of the cobras that the native population there were, was really comfortable with. And so the British, you can imagine them sort of walking around, sort of scared out of their mind in, in their uh, red coat uniforms, right? Jumping, not, not very austere as we typically picture them. <laughs> so the, the, the uh, uh, commander there, he decides to place a, a one cent bounty on cobra tails. And I actually asked my students about this on the very first day of Econ 101. I asked them to think about um, what they think might've happened and also what they might've done in this situation. And usually a student says, oh, I bet you that, you know, somebody began to breed these, these cobras and then just sever their tails and, you know, sort of have converting, you know, converting snakes into a financial asset that's yielding this stream of, of revenue. Um, and that's exactly right. I usually ask, you know, that student whether they have uh, entrepreneurial aspirations. Sometimes I, ask them, <laughs> sometimes I ask them about, you know, um, maybe they should go take an ethics class or something like this. Right. But, but I sort of have fun with them there. Um, and whether or not that story is uh, true, we do have very well documented instances of uh, almost identical cases. So, for example, in uh, France, uh, excuse me, sorry, in Vietnam, where the French, the French were colonizing, they encountered this problem with very large sewer rats. 
And the, uh, the governor, <clears throat> the French governor there in Hanoi does the same thing. He places a bounty on, on rat tails. And, you know, rats are even easier to breed than, than cobras, I would imagine, because they're not, not like deadly pests right there. And so uh, people begin, you know, uh, opening up these cobra farms. And so that's the sense in which entrepreneurship is, is market making. And then once the bounty is, uh, you know, uh, repealed because uh, the administrators recognize its failure, they see all these tailless rats scurrying <laughs> through the city. That's not normal. Um, at that point then the market making entrepreneurs just release those rats back into the city. And now you you see a doubling uh, of the rat the population. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and we like it too, because it, we think it's an illustration of those sort of Misesian dynamics of intervention story. Sure. Um, in a follow-up paper that I, that I mentioned with, with both Dave and Ennio there, what we're trying to do is simply explain variation as to why sometimes bounty programs generate this, these sort of fraudulent responses and why in other cases they generate a more honest production process, I think is the, is the terminology that we use. And again, we don't use anything too fancy there. We're simply uh, you know, appealing to the incentives that um, the people that are producing the good in question. So that would be the people going out and attempting to, um, you know, acquire the bounty, the incentives that they face, as well as the incentives that the people that are administering the bounty face. So there's a, there's a public choice angle to it as well. You know, do those people that are administering the bounty, do they have, um, you know, an incentive to actually monitor this right. or quality, right. or do they just have an incentive to, you know, make an exchange, receive the good in, in return for the, for the bounty? Um, so yes, that, that is those two papers. And I would, I would totally agree with you that there's nothing fancy there, but I would, I would also think, you know, you're right that it's not simple minded, even though it's appealing to simple economic principles. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I think that a lot of people get hung up on economics. Um, so go back to your, uh, um, so, so let's go to methodological principles. What you just described, I think is the way that, that good economics is done. You have theory and you have history. And, you know, you're trying to illuminate the empirical world through the lens of the economic reasoning or the aid of economic reasoning. But your point is a puzzle that you see out in the world, right? It's not a made up puzzle uh, on the blackboard. It's a puzzle in the world. And but going back to your Menger piece, I think that one of the really great things about Menger was unlike Mises, maybe where Mises just has theory history. And, you know, and, and people get confused. What Menger has is three levels, right? He has pure theory. He has empirical realistic theory. And then he has, um, you know, history. And it's in that realm of that empirical realistic that you get the variation that you were just talking about, where yes. you have the interplay between the pure logic of choice and the institutional environment, which produces the situational logic, which is what we're talking about. It's not that the agents in your story, in any of your stories, were irrational, were, you know, uh, you know, uh, caught up by drinking the crazy juice or whatever. They were all following the, the sort of basic logic of choice. But that manifestation of that logic of choice is going to depend on the institutional rules under which they find themselves interacting. And those institutional rules include also their informal norms of 
the rules of just conduct, uh, right? So it's not like you're denying norms or anything like that. And so I think that the way you guys play all that out, and that's why it's interesting to refer to the difference between like honest versus, you know, this other one. So I, anyway, I think those are great illustrations of the power of economic reasoning to do economic research. Um, and, and that the problem in a lot of modern economics is that they have forgotten the economic principles. So like what you're talking, no, no one would be upset with using the greatest tools possible to us to look out the window. So we go to Raj Chetty and he, he's able to process a million data points in a way that we never could have imagined before. Mm -hmm. But the problem, I think, in a lot of his work, as, as sophisticated as it is, as smoothly presented as it is, is that he gives up the y-axis. So he tells us a lot about the what, but we have very little about the why. But the why is what economics is supposed to help us do. That's what Buchanan is talking about when he says it allows us to rise to the height of an observational genius is because the genius is that you can explain the why, not just document the what. And so I think if, if Chetty was combined with no free lunch, we might have, you know, the best economics course in the world, right, going on. Yeah, I, I, well, I, thank Very you. <laughs> Get to um, Harvard quickly. Um, right. um, all right, just a couple last questions, uh, if, if we can. Uh, so one of them is, I just want to ask you about uh, and, and highlight, and again, like your Manger piece, I hope people that are listening are directed towards your video uh, set of videos that go with this. So you're not only a very skilled researcher, but you're really a dedicated and talented teacher. And, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your approach to teaching, what goals you set for yourselves and say like innovations that you pursue, like you did with the video course um, so that others following in your footsteps can embrace the new world, which is maybe in a post-COVID world, we're in a kind of a world where we're doing hybrid classes and we're teaching in different forms and other kinds of things. And, and yet we still value the in-person experience as well as teaching. So, uh, you know. Thank you for those kind words, P. I guess that's a credit to the great economic educators that I've had, you know, whether it be in graduate school with people like yourself and Chris Coyne or, or some of my undergraduate professors at Grove City, uh, a few of whom are now my colleagues, um, you know, from all, of, from all of you guys, I've learned the importance of, of clarity and passion in, in pedagogy. Um, in my own teaching, first and foremost, I really want to awaken a sense of awe and wonder, uh, particularly in my principles level students. Um, one of the epigraphs that's currently at the top of my Econ 101 syllabus comes from uh, the old uh, Catholic theologian, SAS G.K. Chesterton, um, who once famously observed that we are perishing for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. In other words, our eyes really need to be opened by all of the sort of amazing things that uh, are around us. Uh, and in my view, that connects to economics because when you really grasp the coordination and cooperation that characterize market societies that, that are set in that institutional framework of private property, then you really can't help but be, but be in awe. Um, it's a very humbling experience 
as well. Um, I know you're a, a sports guy, Pete, and um, the football coach here at Grove City likes to remark that each of us needs all of us, sort of one of his, his catchphrases. Yeah. And um, I like to think that my what my principles of econ courses do is show how that is true on a massive society-wide scale, not just for the people on the football team. Of course, that's true there too, right? But, it, but it's actually uh, more pervasive. Um, you know, how are we able to access those gains from trade? Uh, and so cooperation really becomes, you know, a central theme of, of my courses. Um, now, in terms of nuts and bolts, how do I attempt to achieve that goal? Well, I, I try to evoke a sense of curiosity about the world because it kind of connect back to what we were saying before, you know, not curiosity about a model, but curiosity about the world that's out the window. Um, and so my first step in teaching principles is to hopefully cause students to stop taking so much for granted. Um, if you peruse my, my 101 syllabus, which is linked on my website, um, you'll see that each day in the, in the semester is centered around a question. So for example, on day one, which I've titled um, The Economic Approach, I asked the question, do seatbelt laws kill? The questions like that hopefully make you make the student curious, but they also suggest that, you know, while economics can be fun, it deals with matters of life and death consequence too. Right. Um, some of my questions are a bit more fanciful. For example, um, on the day that I discuss comparative advantage, I asked the question, which state is the best for growing cars? Which is, of course, a nod to the um, that parable told by David Friedman about cars being grown as a manner of speaking in Iowa, since yeah. it's after all it's Iowan corn that gets traded to Japan in exchange for their superior automobiles. All right. um, and so, and other questions are just straightforward. So, for example, um, on the day where I talk a little bit about labor unions, um, I, I ask the question: Who should we thank for high wages? And I hope that question evokes a sense of curiosity too, because it presupposes that those high real wages are a relatively recent phenomena. And of course they are. Uh, so my goal in, in all these efforts is to, you know, produce students who understand that economic theory is a unified and systematic body of thought, going back to our discussion of, of you know, Chetty's approach a bit, not merely a series of rote facts to be memorized and regurgitated come, come exam time. Um, and he asked a little bit about innovations in teaching and COVID and, and all this. I can't say that I'm one who goes much for the latest pedagogical innovations. Um, I will say that I use PowerPoint, which I know is anathema to some of my talented colleagues in, in the liberal arts. Um, but, but my use of PowerPoints are, are pretty Spartan. Um, oftentimes, I will just include a series of images that I hope the students associate with the concepts that we're discussing. Um, you know, for, so for instance, um, when we discuss price controls at the end of 101, I show them those marvelous pictures from uh, that book that Walter Block edited uh, titled Rent Control Myths and Realities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as, as you know, Pete, you know he, he shows a series of pictures of apartment complexes, some of which have been bombed out, uh, usually during World War II, and others of which were simply subjected to rent control. And then he wants the students to see if they can, you know, distinguish between the two. Um, and so as a class, we have a really good time doing our best, usually failing um, to guess which one is, is which. Um, okay. and, and, you know, you did mention the video series that sort of spawned my, this book, No Free Lunch. I conceived of that as really a supplement to traditional 101 courses. And I think of my new book in the same vein. 
know, when I teach principles, I do teach a technical course, albeit in an Austrian way. Um, but I don't want to convey those principles in a way that's dry and lifeless, or as is more commonly done in a way that makes them kind of seem suspended in thin air. Um, that is irrelevant to the things that we are seeing out at our window. Um, so those principles, the technical principles are very much undergirding what I did in the video series, what I do in the book. It's just that they're in the background, if you like, rather than the foreground, um, if I could, you know, borrow an analogy from Professor Wagner for a moment. Yeah. So smack in the middle of your book is a claim that I am 100% on board with, which is the centrality of mutually beneficial exchange. And, um, you know, as Knight used to like to say, an exchange is an exchange is an exchange. It's voluntary and it's mutually beneficial. And you you play that uh, up and, and that's a way to challenge you know, the claim that exchange is exploitive, but it's so much more because it underlies what your argument is about trade and international trade and everything else. And they link between these. If, if you had to write a sequel and it was only one chapter sequel, what do you think is the biggest fallacy that exists in the world out there in popular opinion that you would like to take another bite of the apple of? Uh, if, if you had a chance cut from these core principles that you have? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'd, I'd probably have to say it's the idea that consumption spending drives the economy. Um, and, and so, you know, one reason my book didn't include it is because I really focused on microeconomic logic right. in this yeah. text. And that even includes the first chapter where I discuss the broken window fallacy. In fact, you're prone to commit the broken window fallacy precisely when you fail to recognize yeah. the importance of microeconomic logic. Right. Um, and so I, I would probably like to, you know, address a fallacy like this one. Um, you know, one only has to skim the pages of our most respected financial journalism outlets to see writers taking this view for granted. It's really never argued for. Um, it's assumed that sort of Keynesian view of the macro economy really seems obvious to many people. Um, and I think it's, it requires long chains of, of economic reasoning to see what actually happens when consumers voluntarily reduce their consumption spending. Um, and, I, and I think it's destructive because governments appeal to this notion to support many of their most destructive monetary and fiscal policies, you know, yeah. on the monetary policy side of things. Maybe inflation can stimulate the desire to consume since rising prices lowers the reward to saving. Um, on the fiscal policy side of things, again, it, it undergirds these uh, attempts to say that, well, as long as government's spending on anything, it's beneficial so long as resources are idle. Um, it, it may even undergird uh, certain redistributive policies of taxing the ultra rich at, at very high levels since they have low marginal propensities to consume. Um, you know, of course, I could go on and, and explain yeah, yeah. why I think those are not convincing, but that might steal from from a future book. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's 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 a it's a very it's a very good answer because that is a, a major issue. So I just have one last question. It's a bonus question, which is just to ask you about future plans uh, and educational ventures that you might have in mind um, that you're up to. You mentioned earlier when I was just talking to you before this, you're going to a conference talking about classical education. That's, that's a, a venture, an educational venture that's valuable, but also what research you might be currently working on and things like that, just to, sure. to see where you're up to. 
Thanks. Well, I'll mention one that's more on the popular side and then maybe one that's more on the scholarly side. So one idea I have that was conceived before I wrote No Free Lunch, but now I'm sort of thinking of as a sequel is I want to examine pithy sayings. You could call them proverbs and use them as a jumping off point for discussing economic fallacies. Um, So there's at least one proverb that economists love to hate. And that is the expression that anything worth doing is worth doing well. Um, And that proverb is, is oftentimes used to illustrate how it is that marginalism shows that to be wrong. Um, And so that's one example. There are others that I have in mind. Like for example, um, it's often remarked, if you want a job done well, you have to do it yourself. Well, you know, I'm sure the originators of that expression didn't mean it quite this way, but in a sense, that's kind of a t- an attack on the division of labor. Right. So I-, I want this to be, again, a sort of a fun book that uses expressions like that as a springboard for discussing other, other economic errors. Um, now, another book project that I'm very much at the preliminary stages for is a scholarly project on the economics of credible commitments. Um, and I know we discussed this in this podcast I see Mises' arguments about the um, Ricardian law of association Uh as being really central to his vision of the social order. Um, So central, in fact, that he almost named human action social cooperation uh, instead of human action. Um, And so uh, one question, though, that I think invites a lot more research is exactly how we appropriate those gains from trade, especially under conditions that would lend themselves to opportunism instead. And so I see a lot of, you know, Chris Coyne and Pete Leeson's work as being in that, in that vein. Um, And so, uh, you know, if trust is lacking between exchange partners, then those parties might curtail their investment in favor of increased consumption and they'll seize fewer gains from trade. Um, And and when transactors anticipate a third party, such as the state uh, that might expropriate their surplus, they also cut back on, on investment. Um, and so the, the long and short of it is that in both cases, you know, society is is poorer. And so commitment, credible commitments really matter deeply for economic outcomes. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm in the middle of sort of sketching a project that first seeks to provide a taxonomy for the way that um, the ways that market participants are able to offer credible commitments. And then secondly, ho- I hope to explore why we see v- variation in in commitment strategies. So I suppose um, you could interpret me mentioning this project on this podcast as my own way of, of maybe making a credible commitment. Credible commitment. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, Caleb, thank you very much. This was very uh, illuminating. Congratulations on, on this book. Um, it's a fantastic contribution to the literature. And, um, you know, as listeners know, I'm a proud graduate of Grove City, uh, as you are. And so I'm just absolutely thrilled to see uh, first rate economic education continuing at the institution from which I was uh, forged and, and born. So thank you for keeping that tradition alive. So, well, thank you, Pete. It was a, it was a pleasure to speak with you this morning. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.